non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. Are they common? When should we be looking for these in our patients? What can we do about them once this diagnosis is made? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host. And with me today is Dr. Gwen Hewitt, the director of the Adult Infectious Disease Care Unit and chairman of the Infection Control Committee at National Jewish Medical and Research Center in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to be talking about atypical mycobacterial infections. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Hewitt. My pleasure. When should we as uh, clinicians and me as a primary care clinician be on the lookout for mycobacterial disease? Well, I think that in a patient that presents to you requiring antibiotics for a pulmonary cough or bronchitis more than two times a year, that should be your first clue. And if a patient is requiring antibiotics for bronchitis more than twice a year, that usually indicates to us as physicians that deal with lung health that there may be something structurally wrong with the lungs, such as uh, bronchiectasis, and, and that's a term we throw around a lot, but basically it's where the breathing tubes have become big and floppy because they've been chronically infected. And in that setting, one most assuredly needs to analyze the sputum for these type of germs that we think are on a dramatic increase in the United States. And would we be more on the lookout for this type of process in patients with asthma and smokers or just in healthy patients? Generally speaking, we find that this uh, type of infection, the demographic today is, has uh, changed quite uh, a lot, if I may, for just one second. Uh, Twenty years ago, the average patient that we would see with this type of lung infection was a male who was between 50 and 70 years of age and who was a smoker. And they would have this infection, if you'd look at a chest x-ray, in the upper parts of the lungs, looking very much like tuberculosis, quite honestly, on a chest x-ray. Today's patient, uh, interestingly enough, is a woman, generally speaking, between the ages of 50 and 75, and generally speaking, is a non-smoker or minimal smoker in, in the remote past, and has a different set of findings on the uh, chest x-ray or CAT scans of the chest. But almost uniformly, this is a person who has some chronic cough, may or may not actually bring up and cough up phlegm, and has some uh, fatigue going along with this. Any uh, ideas as to the reasons behind the changing presentation? Well, that's the one of the million-dollar questions that those of us that uh, work in this arena have yet to answer. But uh, we don't have the foggiest idea, to be perfectly honest, and uh, we're really rapidly trying to get some, some research started on this so that we can come to some conclusions as to why the demographics have changed so uh, substantially. And speaking as, a, again, a, a primary care doctor who probably overuses antibiotics, any evidence that the overuse of antibiotics in viral and other situations could lead to the rise of mycobacteria? Well, that's certainly a thought, and, and those of us that are in the arena of being antibiotic stewards, I think, always need to be cognizant of this. I think uh, probably the more important fact relating to non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections is that if we overuse antibiotics that are commonly used today for bronchitis, such as Zithromax or Biaxin, if the patient actually has a non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection, you're constantly giving this antibiotic to the patient, 
when you actually need to use that antibiotic to treat this infection, the germ will have already become resistant to it, so it's not going to be at our disposal, and that always bodes for a worse prognosis for the patient. So, yes, antibiotic stewardship is very important in this infection. In the clinical setting, again, we've got our our patient, the middle-aged woman who's come in a couple times this year for uh, bronchitis and got some dyspnea. What are the next steps to start to look for mycobacteria? Well, again, um, what we've all been taught in the past is to start out with a chest x-ray, but unfortunately what we know with uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease is that uh, the chest x-ray underestimates the uh, degree of uh, disease that actually may be evident. So uh, a chest CT scan is now included in the new guidelines that uh, were just published uh, in 2008, a joint publication by the American Thoracic Society and the Infectious Disease Society of America. So a CAT scan of the chest and the common uh, starting areas of damage are in the right middle lung zone and the left mid-lung zone in women. And this is where you'll find bronchiectasis developing in some nodular disease most often. Should the pulmonologist be the one to order this, or it's all right if the primary care doctor takes the initiative? I love when a primary care doc takes the initiative. If you can get a good sputum sample from these patients, you can very often even save them the need for a bronchoscopy, and you can make the diagnosis on your own. And certainly then uh, you might want to uh, pass the baton on to a specialist who deals with the antibiotics that we use to treat this organism. We get the CT scan and get a sputum sample and send that for acid fast stain, I imagine. Absolutely. And and, uh, as a routine, I usually always look for other pathogens as well. So in my patients who are coming to me as a new patient with bronchiectasis only, I will check for fungus as well as routine respiratory organisms such as Pseudomonas or Staphylococcus aureus some of these other pathogens that kind of uh, go hand-in-hand with uh, non-tuberculous mycobacteria. If you're just joining us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Gwen Hewitt from the National Jewish Medical and Research Center in Denver about atypical mycobacterial infections or non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. I suppose that's a better term, Dr. Hewitt? I think these days NTM, uh, which stands for non-tuberculous mycobacteria, is probably the more common label attached to this. Is a PPD useful? PPD is the typical skin test uh, that we use to test for tuberculosis. And generally speaking, no, it is not useful because it will sometimes cross-react, believe it or not, with these organisms and give you what we call a false positive skin test for tuberculosis, which is not what we're trying to look for anyway. So a PPD skin test is not appropriate if you're thinking about this organism. And then once a diagnosis is made, how are we treating these patients? What we uh, routinely will treat is using three different antibiotics for the organism. You never want to use just one antibiotic at a time because the organism will rapidly develop resistance. So we use three separate uh, antibiotics, usually uh, rifampin or rifabutin plus uh, ethambutol plus biaxin or azithromycin and treat for between one and two years based on how advanced the disease is when we start therapy. So certainly a a treatment regimen that's akin to tuberculosis where you use uh, more than one drug, three drugs, and for a prolonged period of time. Do these patients need to be isolated? No, and that's very important. Many uh, patients that are ultimately 
diagnosed with NTM infections, their doctors uh, are called by the hospital laboratory because the, uh, on the microscope exam, which is the initial exam, these germs look just like the tuberculosis germs, so you cannot tell the difference. And they will appropriately be isolated and told that they have tuberculosis for usually a week or so until the final testing can be done to decide whether the germ is tuberculosis germ, which would require isolation of the patient until they couldn't spread the infection to someone else, or diagnosed with a non-tuberculous mycobacteria, which is not contagious, and the patient does not need to be in isolation. Very interesting. And you don't have to wait for the culture for that. Are there other techniques? Yes, there are much quicker techniques. And in some of the larger hospitals, you can actually know that the next day so that the patient will be told you do not have tuberculosis, you are not contagious, and you can go and do whatever you need to do. Is uh, this ever just a colonizer versus a true pathogen? Well, I happen to think, as do my colleagues, that this is never what we call a colonizer. And the reason is, is that these germs should really never be causing inflammation in the lungs. So if you repeatedly grow this germ from sputum cultures over time, that is not considered colonization. That, that would be a, a more appropriate term would be chronic infection. Mm-hmm. And I guess as a clinician, our job is to decide when you start to treat this because you may not start to treat it and you still have to have the knowledge that, yes, this is creating some chronic inflammation, but is it time to start yet? Because uh, in many circumstances, we will say we're only going to control this infection. We may not be able to cure it, particularly if it's an advanced infection by the time we, we make the diagnosis. And I know in my practice, I have an elderly woman with asthma, several other comorbidities, and I think her pulmonologist decided just to treat for a short period of time and and then to just let it go. Could that just be because of the uh, difficult nature of the treatment and her comorbidities? Well, and I think that, uh, yes, that could be the issue. I I will have to say that for, for colleagues that deal in this arena all the time, and there are many of us around the country, and many centers, at least four centers of excellence. So if you just typed a Google search in for non-tuberculous mycobacteria, you'll see the center of, centers of excellence that all have helplines too. It's a good time to have your internist or if you're already seeing a pulmonologist to say, gosh, can I get a second opinion from one of these doctors who deals with this all the time so they can say, make up a treatment regimen that I would be able to tolerate or know the side effects and are able to talk to me in a language that I can understand uh, to help me understand if treatment is the right thing to to pursue. That's an excellent point, I think, uh, certainly for patients, but maybe more so for, for caregivers to know that there are centers of excellence and we can just find that again, Dr. Hewitt, by going uh, online. Absolutely. And certainly our facility at National Jewish has uh, one of the free consult lines available, but there are, are three other centers in the country that have uh, have good helplines as well. So all these are available to patients. And, and In the two minutes we have left, how about a minute on this entity called Hot Tub Lung and then anything uh, new and important in the field of tuberculosis? Well, uh, Hot Tub Lung is basically an allergic reaction to these type of uh, germs that are present in water systems 
that are associated with indoor hot tubs predominantly and indoor uh, water parks or indoor swimming pools. And basically, the lung goes berserk when it (laughs) comes into contact with these germs and the proteins on these germs, and it starts attacking itself. And it causes a, a brisk inflammatory reaction in the lungs and progressive hypoxia and fatigue and maybe fever and, and maybe permanent structural lung damage. Well, I want to thank Dr. Gwen Hewitt, who has been our guest as we've been discussing non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections, uh, something I find very, very interesting, and she's described it beautifully. Uh, remember to keep these in mind in our, our patients, uh, particularly middle-aged women. But patients who present at least twice a year with bronchitis, needing antibiotics, who may have some dyspnea, it's something that you don't want to miss. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you very much for listening.